So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. So, Father, what we're doing these minutes together is we're exploring your word. We're exploring your ways. I want to see how your word explains your ways. How all this connects with 2018 living. Now, in this third service, again, you know the needs that are here. You know the challenges that some have faced in the past days here. The highs and the lows, the gains and the losses, what weighs upon people's hearts and minds spiritually, job-wise, finance, medical issues, family dynamics, singleness and married. All these things, Father, come into play. We want to see the relevance of all this. So we open up your word. It's timeless, not time-bound. So, Father, give us now the insights we need. So in these minutes you give us to be together once again. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. How's your GPS working? Not so good for Alan. My daughter and I were visiting a college in Bangor, Maine. And after a nice trip, we had our GPS take us back to the car rental agency except it just didn't seem like it was taking us the right way. We were in the middle of nowhere and pulled up to a graveyard, and the GPS said, you've arrived at your destination. And then there's this lady from Belgium. Sabina's her name. Travels her game. Started her journey home, in her hometown, small town of Belgium, wanted to pick up a friend at a train station in Brussels, just 93 miles north from her point of origin. But instead, she turned on her GPS, which told her to drive south, taking her turn by turn by turn all the way into Croatia. And instead of a couple hours in the car, she spent a couple days to cover the 900 miles that separate both points in Europe. And I want to ask, and why? But you see, during Sabina's odyssey, she stopped two times to get gas, slept for a few hours on the side of the road, even suffered a minor car accident. And when asked about all this, she said, well, I was simply distracted. She said, I was distracted, so I kept driving. I saw all kinds of signs first in French and then in German and finally in Croatian. But I just followed my GPS and I kept driving because I was distracted. And suddenly I realized I'm not in Belgium anymore. And I want to say, total, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. 
which leads us to Susa. In Persia, known as Sush, in what's now modern-day Iran. And the Jews have got to be wondering, and how did I get here anyways, you see? But what I want to do with you is to explore that question together a little bit. GPS, instead of viewing it as global positioning system, we're going to view it as God's positioning strategy. The GPS is at work here now in chapter 2, and what I want to do is to draw out three significant means by which God goes about positioning you and positioning me in settings and in jobs, in neighborhoods, in relationships, to achieve his purposes and to do it for his glory, even though you find yourself in a setting you didn't think you would ever be in. Three significant means here. First comes out of 5 through 11. We're going to put it this way, number one. God positions his people strategically through such means as the changes that we experience, you and I experience, during our lives. Let's dig in. Notice now it begins now. I love the contemporary aspect of Scripture. Always relevant to the moment, even if you're dealing with history. Now there. Now there was a Jew. Now the reader at this point pauses and says, I, I didn't expect that. If you, had, if you had said, now there was a Persian, I'd get that. Furthermore, what you and I have got to bear in mind is that the Persians, modern-day Iran, the Persians migrated from Russia. They have a Russian origin. There is an ethnic connection. If you see Vladimir Putin in proximity to and in conversation with leaders of Iran, you shouldn't be surprised when you consider the geopolitical aspects and how it relates to the global workings of the sovereign God. But what comes next is also interesting. Now, there was a Jew in Susa. Susa. And you say, Gary, that rings a bell. If you were to go back into a prior time, you would find that Daniel, in chapter 8, verse 2, was ministering in Susa. He was positioned by God to influence the kings, both Babylon and Persia. On the other hand, if you go into the book of Nehemiah, which we studied in 2016, for those that are new here, in the opening verses of chapter 1 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is ministering to King Artaxerxes, where? In Susa. Now, if your first name is Susan, it's derived from Susa. In Iran, if you look at a map, Sush is now the name of that setting. 
God does not overlook small settings. He uses the Bethlehems of this world to bring the king of the Jews into this world. In the microcosmic, connects to the macrocosmic elements of his global positioning strategy, you see. Connecting Bethlehem to Calvary. So now you've got a Daniel who has been positioned to minister to the Nebuchadnezzars of this world, the Belshazzars of this world. You have a Nehemiah who is ministering to the Artaxerxes of this world, the son, by the way, of the king we're reading of in this chapter, Susa. And now you've got Esther here, and she's in Susa, and probably wondering, how did I get here anyways? Maybe you wondered that as well this morning. There are no accidents in God's plan, but rather strategic appointments in God's plan, in his positioning of his people for his glory. Bonham Shaw had to come to grips with that. His biographer tells us that when Bonham Shaw was teaching God's word in Cape Town, South Africa, he decided not to leave Africa when he was told he could no longer teach God's word, but rather to push into the interior, even though that wasn't cutting edge. He bought a yoke of oxen, put his wife, his goods into a wagon, started out, resolved to settle wherever he would be allowed to teach God's word. Get this, they traveled 300 miles into the interior. And while camping one night, the biographer now tells us, quote, they discovered that a band of Hottentots were also camping nearby. And in conversation with the leader, Shaw learned that these people were, as an entire tribe, on their way to Cape Town to find somebody who could teach them God's word. God's positioning strategies. Life can appear chaotic to the eye. But what you have to do is to get beyond eyesight and to take an insight and to allow for God's word to connect the dots of living day in, day out. So now, what's your Susa? Where's your Susa? The neighborhood you're in, the job you have, the school you attend, but you're going to get to the point where you have to also deal with the relationships in your Susa. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, that name captures our attention as well, you see. And it catches us off guard because Mordecai comes from a word which means worshiper of Marduk which was one of the, I'll make it with a small g, gods of the Babylonians. Now, before that offends you, bear in mind that in the book of Daniel, Daniel was renamed as well, wasn't he? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also renamed as well, weren't they? 
So what we see here now is that they're going to start to wrestle with their sense of where do I belong? And who am I? And where do my allegiances, allegiances truly lie? Which is something to be thought through in this fluid culture of ours. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, draw a line from Jew to Mordecai because you are drawing a line from Jew to Gentile. A Jewish name to a Gentile's name. Jew from Judah to Mordecai, Gentile. Son of Jair. And now we're given the genealogy of this man. He's, he's of a line of Jews. What we see here is we're starting to see a culture clash being set up. As the Jews are going to have to wrestle with, where do I belong? Like a Christian on a secular campus. And how do I relate in the classroom to the worldview presentations? And how do I maintain a sense of distinctiveness in a pluralistic culture? But there's nothing new under the sun because those were the issues of that day and age too. Keep going. Because Mordecai's got to grapple with the change of life and that there's been a change of geography. He's not... A He's not in Kansas anymore. He's not in Israel. He's in Persia. They don't know the Jews' God. Why am I here? Ever had that sense of aloneness when God positions you in relationships and settings where people don't value what you value and know who you know? Don't underestimate the connectedness here between the description a Jew in verse 5 with the name Mordecai in verse 5. He wants you to feel tension. But now we're up to verse 6. Look for repetition. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away three times. He's not in charge of his life. It seems as though he's being swept away. And now the question is, and who's in charge here anyways? I'm making decisions that don't seem to have consequences. Others are making decisions, and there are consequences. And the consequences are for me based upon the decisions they make. The Nebuchadnezzars of this world and so on. So now there's a sense of change. There's a sense of loss. He's been, well, he's been repositioned. And for some of us, no matter where you work, no matter what school you attend, no matter what setting that you live in, ponder positioning, God's positioning strategy. And ask yourself, what is God doing here? Anyways, Leland Riken, who has written about the Puritans. He's a professor at Wheaton. He notes how Walter Pringle told his children the exact places where certain things happened to him. 
His first exercise of prayer came at the northeast of Stitchell Hall. Later, he committed his newborn son to God at the plum tree on the north side of the garden door. What they did was that they found sacred ideas in secular settings. And the believer brings the sacred into the secular. No matter where you work, no matter where you go to school, and no matter what relationships you're in, you are being GPS. You are being positioned by God. You are not to be isolated from the world. You're to be insulated within the world, you see. In the world, but not of the world. To paraphrase John in the 17th chapter. But now you're up to verse, verse 7. And again now, I want you to see a tension here. Mordecai had it in the masculine gender. Now Esther's going to have it in the feminine gender. Mordecai, Jew on one hand. Mordecai, name, Babylonian name on the other hand. I want you to see the dual naming of Esther here. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's a Jewish name, means myrtle. That is Esther. Or, if you want to take the Persian, Estar, S-T-A-R, in it, which means then they were called up in astrology and gaining their sense of perspective on life from the stars. Ishtar was the Babylonian goddess of love and of war. So now, like Daniel and his three friends, so now Esther, as well as Mordecai, are dealing with a sense of identity in a culture that they can't fully embrace. Is that where you're at? Where do I fit in? That is Esther, and now notice all of a sudden the discipling. The daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. There's a sense of loss here. Mom's gone. Dad's gone. How do I navigate through the change of life? Maybe some of you are wrestling with that sense of lostness or impending lostness. How do you deal with the change of life? Keep applying changeless truths to your changing times. Now, notice the physical features here. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, the Persians would put tremendous value upon the outward appearance, as does our culture today. But I want you to see here that behind the description of eyesight is the provision of insight. Mordecai took her as his own daughter, and so now he has been pouring himself into her. Who are you pouring yourself into? What lives are you shaping? Don't underestimate the relational connectedness that God has given you. Even in the midst of loss, there could be a sense of gain. Where you're drawn close to somebody who's going through loss so that they in turn can experience gain. And you might experience gain as well from that relationship. But then you've got another win. You're at verse 8. 
Now when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in, there it is again, Susa, where Daniel of a prior time was positioned, GPS, next to a king, and in the future, Nehemiah positioned next to Artaxerxes, the first who would be the son of the king, being described here in this chapter. You see now that there's positioning happening even though they're getting renamed. Because the real issue is not what's their name. The real issue is do they know the name of God, Yahweh? Well, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, and I can imagine the Jewish reader leaning forward at this point, drinking in the geography and seeing now the connections past, present, future. God's doing something here, generation by generation. Where do I fit in? Where am I on the timeline of life? She's in custody of Haggai. Ever felt as though life's out of control? Well, Esther is probably saying to herself, not only have my people been removed from Persia, or to Persia, and some returned. Now Esther, we are told here in verse 8, was taken. She doesn't even have a choice. Ever struggle with that violation of rights aspect of life? Taken into the king's palace, put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. But now, as we've said in the book of Esther, though God's name isn't apparent, God's involved. Though God is invisible, God is involved. Though God is invisible, furthermore, God's plan is invincible. He's working his plan yard by yard, downfield, moving the chains slow but sure. Young woman pleased him, won his favor. He quickly provided her with cosmetics, Avon calling, you see. Her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace advanced her. Somebody's advancing her. Her young women to the best place in the harem. Now, bear in mind here at this point, you might be saying to yourself, I can't, I can't. I can't quite get my head around this whole idea here of the harem found in the Bible. But bear in mind, you're dealing with history. This is descriptive, not prescriptive at this point. Or to move it off the medical realm into the sports realm, at the end of our elder meeting Monday night, you've got wonderful elders and deacons, I want you to know. Headed home, and uh, Alabama was playing Georgia. So you know where your senior pastor was headed. And so sat down and processed. And the interesting thing is there was both a play-by-play -play man as well as an analyst. Now, the play-by-play -play man is, in essence, doing the descriptive. The analyst is doing the prescriptive. The play-by-play -play man is simply telling you what's happening. Now, this is what the writer of Ezra is doing at this point, simply doing history for you, 
not moralizing, saying what ought to be, but rather saying what is. Distinguish between the is and the oughts, the was and the oughts. Right now it's descriptive. Hmm. In 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So we've got an undercover Yahweh follower on our hands here. And in 11, every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Napoleon, when intoxicated with his success and his supposed power, said, I make circumstances. But God says otherwise. So if you're grappling with change now today, relationally, change now geographically, change now financially, GPS moment. God positions his people strategically through such means as first the changes we experience during our lives, 5 through 11. But second of all, God positions his people strategically through such means as the dilemmas we face during our lives. You see, life's filled with hard choices. And sometimes life throws us dilemmas in which we really didn't have much of a choice. Check this out in verse 12. Another now when. Now when the turn to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations, you see, of the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil, myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, another when. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. I want you to see the wise discreetness here. Because in 14 in the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return. Again, descriptive, not prescriptive. You're reading history here. And in this return, she would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, Right when you get to the point when you see that name, a Gentile name, all of a sudden you reminded her, you remind once again of her Jewish lineage, the daughter of Abihel. And furthermore, the discipling aspect of how do you maintain a sense of distinctiveness in a pluralistic culture? She's Jewish. And then you bring it into the pluralistic 2018 of America, generally speaking, as you look at the history and how it relates to current events here. And here's Esther on one hand, Gentile name, on the other hand, Jewish lineage, daughter of Abihel. And then the discipling of it all, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing. She's going to make this tough. 
Nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, had charged for the women advised. Though invisible, God's involved. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. You see the heavy emphasis on the visual here? But again, there's insight behind the emphasis on the eyesight. More time issues in 16. And when Esther was taken to Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king, now known in modern-day terms as Iran, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. A Jew. Now, the Jews were marginalized. Esther will be centralized. And if you feel like you've been marginalized in your extended family, marginalized in your school, marginalized in the workplace. Ponder the way in which God's GPS strategy is such that he takes the person who might, by eyesight, appear to be marginalized, and in God's strategy, positions that person and become so centralized. He does that with you, you know. Bethlehem will look like it's out on the margins. And then a Messiah for all time and all settings enters into the world. So what happens? He made her queen instead of Vashti. And there's this great feast. And now it gets global attention. It's known as, it's known as Esther's feast. And you begin to ponder the significance of the way in which this GPS is unfolding. Perhaps after spending too much time at the 19th hole, someone writes, a woman in Northbridge, Massachusetts, drove her car into a sand trap on a golf course. She was unable to extricate herself without going well over par. This wasn't her fault, of course. She blames it on her GPS. Northbridge police officer Randy Lloyd wrote in his report that her GPS had told her, <coughs> excuse me, to turn left. She stated that this left brought her into a cornfield. And once she was in the cornfield, she just kept driving, trying to get out of the cornfield and move from cornfield to sand trap. Ever felt that way? Feel like you're in the sand trap of life? God positions his people strategically through such means as the changes that we experience in life. 5 through 11. The dilemmas we face during our lives. 12 through 18. But now thirdly, starting verse 19. Thirdly, God positions his people strategically through such means as the relationships 
we establish during our lives. Don't underestimate even the acquaintances in your orbit. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And I was interested at this point in studying the whole matter of the king's gate because the king's gate is more than just a gate into your backyard. The king's gate at that time was positioned about a football field away from the palace, and it was there that the administrative decision-making, the governmental managers were positioned for decisions based upon the issues they were confronted with. A recent archaeological find back in the 1970s, a trilingual inscription of this very king described here in the book of Esther celebrates a gatehouse and what took place there. Meanwhile, in verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. As Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Do you see the incredible influence that he has upon her? Are you shaping a life? This is a multi-generational influence. But now the time factor still is present in verse 21. In those days, now I want you to see how God is doing his positioning. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, get this, a Jew in a Persian empire, a Jew positioned in an administrative office at the palace's gate. Bigthon and Teresh, those are two Persians, not two Jews. Two of the king's eunuchs who got at the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This is not Jews in revolt against the government. These are Persians in revolt against Persian government. What's going to happen? And why didn't Mordecai go back with that original group to Israel? Could it be that God's got a plan of action here? And could it be that God has a plan of action here? And why you've taken a certain position of responsibility? And why you're located in a particular street, in this particular region? Could it be for such a time as this? In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who got at the threshold, became angry, sought to lay hands on, I'll call him now King Xerxes, it's easier, 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. But what I want you to see is that God has a way of sovereignly connecting people. God has now positioned Esther next to the king. God has positioned Mordecai at, the, at this gate. Mordecai hears about this assassination plot. Mordecai sends information to Esther, 
Esther, in turn, tells the king, and note here the significance of this. Esther told the king at the end of verse 22, in the name of Mordecai. We've got a Jew protecting the Gentile king. What's God doing? Eventually, in the same book, we're going to have a Gentile king protecting the Jews. And Esther is in the middle of it all. God's positioning strategy. And so in verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the gallows. They were at the forefront of this. And furthermore, you and I are told, and it was recorded in the books of the Chronicles, positioning moment in the presence of the king, where Esther, positioned by God, positioned next to the king, made absolutely certain that this was told to the king in the name of Mordecai. And now you're beginning to see how God pulls together a strategy to bring honor and glory to his name. William Wolfe talks about Abraham Lincoln's growing understanding of God in the final days of the Civil War, writes, he had a growing sense of seeing the hand of God intimately in the affairs of nations. What I want you to see here is that this is the providence of God. That he is not merely watching us. For as it says in our insert this morning, he's watching over us. Because the providence of God is both personal and purposeful. And if you drink in the phrase that's listed there in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we end that paragraph by noting that the providence of God is operative historically, globally, and personally. I want to simply say that God is not merely watching you. He's watching over you. And it is both personal and purposeful. be continued. Let's stand together. It's a great subject, the providence of God. The sovereign God who doesn't merely watch. The sovereign God who watches over. You are the God who makes it personal. You are the God who makes it purposeful. And you can take chaotic experiences like some might be facing right now. Difficult circumstances that some might be experiencing right now. 
and realize that all things work together for the good to them that are called according to his purpose. So, Father, help us now to take what we are learning here and apply it to everyday life. Give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.